0: This week we turn our attention to the Divine Kingship Psalms uh, among the Psalter, the collection of 150 psalms. In the fledgling and newly founded United States, there was a question among the populace and among her leaders as to what her first executive leader would be called. Many were afraid that the first executive leader of the United States would eventually just kind of become a king himself, which was what uh, the the United States was sort of uh, founded to get away from, from this monarch of England and the impositions that come with that. And so uh, with the first president, George Washington, uh, being elected, many were not sure what to call him. Uh, Vice President John Adams suggested calling him such things as his elective majesty, His Mightiness, even His Highness, the President of the United States of America, and the Protector of their Liberties. That's hard to make into an acronym. Ultimately, the House of Representatives adopted the official title and humble title, President of the United States. Just very matter of fact, it's what he is, it's the name of the office. And George Washington himself, rather than being called or preferring to be called His Elective Majesty, His Mightiness, His Highness, uh, the Protector of their Liberties, He instead opted for the personal designation, Mr. President. Very simple, very humble, recognizing he was not a king and did not want to be called or referred to as a king. We have, uh, I think as Americans, kind of just ingrained in us this uh, uh, opposition to uh, monarchical rulership, to having kings over us. Uh, this thought that one man, that one individual would rule and reign over every aspect of our lives is, is difficult for us, uh, particularly as those who are kind of, uh, uh, as a country, born out of uh, a rebellion and revolution against such leadership. The divine kingship psalms of Scripture lead us to embrace divine kingship, to embrace God as a king. Not to rebel against him as as we sometimes in our Western American mindset might want to do, rebelling against a king, but to embrace him as a king. The Divine Kingship Psalms present the Lord God as king of the cosmos, as king over everything. Presents him as one who's victorious over all of his enemies and who puts everything under submission to himself. These psalms are intended to present God in all of his unveiled sovereign majesty. We may rebel against human kings who often lead imperfectly and and sometimes even sinfully, but that is not God and that is not how the divine kingship psalms present God to us. Psalm 97, as we'll see in just a moment, declares not only that the Lord reigns over all things, but that also declares to us that those who receive and submit to His reign are truly blessed and most perfectly satisfied in Him. It is good to be a citizen of the King who is the Lord. And so we as Christians, as we encounter these divine kingship psalms throughout the Psalter, we ought to read them and look to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Rejoicing in the fact that his kingdom has come on earth and that his kingdom has come in our hearts. The divine kingship psalms uh, uh, within the Psalter point us to the one true divine king, Jesus, the Son of God. Now the divine kingship psalms are interesting uh, for, how we, for how they are characterized. Uh, among them, they are uh, easily recognized by the common phrase, the Lord reigns. The Hebrew phrase is Yahweh Malak. Uh, that's translated most often in English as the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, reigns. He rules. The divine kingship psalms declare his sovereign reign over all things and all people. These songs often appear hymn-like in their praise and worship of God. Hymns were the first kind of psalms that we looked at several weeks ago. These psalms that that extol and praise and give glory to God for all that he is and has done. And the divine kingship psalms can look like hymns at points. And so they are thus Songs of what we call orientation, where the psalmist who's writing this psalm is in a confident state of mind, a confident state of faith, a confident state of of trust and submission to God who is king. You have in your worship guide down at the, the bottom of that notes page some other divine kingship psalms that you can read throughout this week. There are Psalms 2, Psalm 47, and then you get a whole cluster of them all together in the 90s, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. So there's a whole cluster of kingship psalms that you can read, and I invite you to read this week. How do we approach God as King? What does Scripture tell us about God who is King? Let us look to the text this morning and explore that together. Would you stand with me as we read uh, Psalm 97? The psalmist writes, "The Lord reigns, Yahweh Malak. Let the earth rejoice; let the many coastlands be glad." "'Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. "'Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. "'Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. "'His lightnings light up the world. "'The earth sees and trembles. "'The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, "'before the Lord of all the earth. "'The heavens proclaim his righteousness "'and all the peoples see his glory. "'All worshipers of images are put to shame.' Who make their boast in worthless idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Let me be seated. Psalm 97, this divine kingship psalm, tells us several things about the Lord. First of all, in the first six verses or so, shows us that the Lord reigns over creation. The Lord reigns over creation. The way that the Lord is described as ruling uh, as a king first encompasses all of the created order, all of the cosmos. The frequency of God's reign over the created world is is not a fabrication as we've seen week after week after week in this series in the Psalms. It seems like we've seen this idea, we've seen this concept presented week after week. Uh, That's not my doing. I didn't cherry pick the Psalms that point us to God's sovereignty over all things. Uh, This theme of God's rulership over creation really does occur that often in the Psalms. The psalmist presents the Lord as surrounded uh, by clouds and thick darkness with righteousness and justice as his throne. This image of clouds and darkness surrounding the Lord with lightning and fire going before him, going out at his will, draws our attention back to, I think, the most palpable and tangible physical manifestation of God in all of the Old Testament. You'll remember back in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel had just been delivered out of slavery uh, in Egypt, and they are there gathered around the base of Mount Sinai. Moses uh, and the priests have gone about halfway up. The Levites have gone about halfway up the mountain. Then Moses by himself goes all the way to the very top of the mountain to meet with the Lord in person. And in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20, we read this description of how God manifested His presence among the people of Israel. Just listen. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountaintop trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord, Yahweh's presence, is indeed a strong and foreboding presence. Cloud and thick darkness surround him. He is not, as the psalmist describes, and even as we see in Exodus 19, he is not a safe God, but one whose holiness and purity brings terror to the hearts of sinful men. These verses help to set the right tone for receiving and approaching God. He is to be feared. He is to be respected. He is to be honored. He is powerful. He is mighty. His powerful presence has a particular weight to it that impresses upon those who witness his coming the reality of his divinity. Amen. Yahweh is not a God to take lightly, nor is he a God to approach flippantly. He is not safe, but, dear friends, he is good. The created world rejoices at his coming, terrible as it may seem, because he is the rightful king of the universe who has come to reign in majesty. The Lord is Lord over all creation. As we understand these things about who the Lord is in Psalm 97, I want us to also look at the the consummate, Uh, fulfillment of these images of the Lord as King uh, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The psalmist says in Psalm 97 that the Lord reigns over creation and we see in the life of Jesus Christ, Christ the King demonstrating his own power over creation. And we see that Christ himself will return in power and in might. The greatest of Jesus' demonstrations of power over, over creation in his earthly ministry was certainly, I think, the calming of the storm that we read of in Matthew eight twenty-three through 27 Where there we read, Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Jesus was asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm. And when they went and woke him, uh, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, in the middle of the storm, just woken up from his nap. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men, his disciples, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus is king over creation. He demonstrates that in his earthly ministry. And yet Jesus, in his own words, uh, indicating how he would return at the end of time is the reigning king of all. He describes his own return this way. So we not only see his, his reign over all creation in this calming of the storm in his earthly ministry, but, but Jesus tells us exactly how he will return in power, in majesty on the last day. In Luke 21, verse 27, Jesus teaching the crowd says this, they will see... The Son of Man, which is his favorite designation for himself, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Clouds and thickness, uh, clouds and thick darkness are all around him, says the psalmist. And consider again the powerful image of King Jesus as he appears to John in Revelation chapter one, verses thirteen through fifteen. To answer the question that, uh, or any question that there may be as to whether Jesus is God, whether he is mighty, whether he is powerful, whether he rules over the cosmos. John describes the risen Jesus this way. In the midst of the lampstands appeared one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash, a royal sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. We know that this is not a picture of what Jesus looks like, but this is a picture in John's words of what Jesus is like. He is a mighty, ruling, reigning king, king of all the cosmos, uh, king uh, of one whose power is unmatched. Jesus reigns over all things. The Lord is God over all things. Psalm 97 teaches us, secondly, that the Lord reigns not just over all creation, but he reigns even over other gods, little g in quotation, quotation marks, other gods. We see this in verses six and seven, and then in verse nine. We read the heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the people see his glory. All worshipers of images, all idolaters are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Verse nine, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Verse six declares that the Lord is a king who reigns, who rules in the sight of everyone. Even as we saw uh, last week in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory uh, of the Lord and the created order demonstrates that He is King of the universe. But more than the physical world though, the Lord reigns over the spiritual world as well, including all other spiritual beings which are created by Him. Because of this, Those people who worship false gods, those people who worship lesser created spiritual beings like angels or demons, these idol worshipers will be put to shame, the psalmist says, as the Lord arrives to his throne. When the Lord comes to reign in power, there is no question about who and what he is king over and all those who have been worshiping lesser kings, lesser gods, will be put to shame at that moment. Even as the psalmist states, other gods worship at the feet of the Lord. Now, we ought not to understand the psalmist to be saying that there are other gods besides the Lord. Uh, we, we know that it's the constant confession of the Jewish people from, from the earliest places uh, in Scripture where, where we have them confessing who God is, particularly Deuteronomy 6, that there is one God and He is the Lord. But this word "gods" can be used in kind of a—I don't want to say sarcastic, but uh, but but uh, but semi-sarcastic, sort of referential way to other spiritual beings that that uh, the pagan people worship, right? Supposed gods. That's why I put it in in scare quotes with a small g. The New Living Translation, uh, if you're reading from that and studying from that today, the New Living Translation translates verse 7 this way. Those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. It's a figurative way of saying that there is no god besides the Lord, and when he appears in all of his majesty, even those other supposed gods who are receiving worship from people, even they will have to bow their knee to him because they are not, in fact, God. Even these spirits, even these false gods cannot maintain their pretense in the presence of Yahweh. Like Prince Charles in Disney's Robin Hood. You remember Prince Charles, that kind of gangly looking lion who is uh, reigning over Nottingham uh, and the rest of Britain... When King Richard the Lionheart returns on the scene at the end of the film, he's uh, he's portrayed as a lion with a big flowing mane and a a very royal crown and garb and attire. He's very strong in appearance as opposed to Prince Charles who's kind of, uh, uh, um, or Prince John, excuse me, kind of just like I said, gangly and sickly looking as a lion. When When King Richard the Lionheart returns, Prince John is put in his rightful place. So long as King Richard was gone, Prince John acted like a king, pretended to be like a king, and yet he was this sniveling, snot-nosed sort of uh, tyrant and, and despot. When King Richard shows up, Prince John is put in his place, and King Richard rules rightly. So it is with these other false gods, with these gods that pretend to be divine, pretend to be able to receive worship. When God is on the scene, even they fall down in worship of him. The Lord reigns over other gods, and Christ the King proved His divine power over spiritual forces in His life. And Christ the King will reign until the last enemy is defeated. Right after Jesus calmed that storm in Matthew, we read of Him sending violent demons out of two men who were living among the rocky cliffs of the Galilean shore. When Jesus comes upon these possessed men, the demons cry out when Jesus comes, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Who do you think is ruling and reigning in that moment? These powerful, violent demons who have possessed the bodies of these men? Or Jesus, who just on walking up to where these men are, draws out from the lips of these men who are possessed by these demons, Please leave us alone. We're terrified of your presence. Demonic spirits are not the last or greatest enemy to be defeated by King Jesus, though. Certainly they are a, a great enemy, a good enemy for him to defeat. But the greatest enemy, the last enemy for Christ the King to defeat is death. Yeah, amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, and then in 25 and 26, these words. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yeah, amen. Dear friend, there's a thing of which to be more afraid than demons or other spiritual forces. That thing to be more afraid of than demons or spiritual forces is death. Death, which is a result of our sin and rebellion against God, the only true king. Death, which stands to separate us from God for all time. Death which has been defeated in Jesus Christ as he died on the cross bearing the weight and the guilt of our sin and then three days later being raised again from the grave to say death you have no power over me, sin you are defeated and all who trust in me Jesus says will be free from death. This is good news. The Lord reigns over spiritual forces and other false gods, and Christ the King defeats not only spiritual forces and demons in his own life, in his own earthly ministry, but Christ has defeated even death by his resurrection. Third, we see in verse eight, the psalmist teaches that the Lord reigns over his kingdom. The Lord reigns over creation; he reigns over other gods; he reigns over his kingdom. Verse 8 echoes verse 1. Verse 1 says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. glad." Verse 8 says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Verse 8 applies the rejoicing of the cosmos now to the people of God. He uses the word Zion, which is uh, the, the name of the city that we know as Jerusalem or the city of David. So when Yahweh, when the king of Israel arrives, his people rejoice. They receive him gladly as he enters the city. They rejoice precisely because they know that their just and holy, their righteous God, reigns in justice and in righteousness. Vindication. Rest from the from enemies. Justice and mercy are theirs when the king enters the scene. So when Jesus arrives to his when the Lord arrives to his kingdom, the people rejoice. This is not to say that God is ever absent from his people, but a figurative way of speaking about when uh, about God's presence among his people. When God is present among his people, they rejoice. They are glad because he's ruling and reigning in justice and righteousness over his kingdom and over his citizens. This picture of the Lord reigning over his kingdom is fulfilled for, for us in the New Testament. In Christ the King, as he entered Zion to the praise of his people. As he entered Jerusalem to the praises of his people. And Jesus, who will return to live forever with his people in the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. On the Sunday of the last week of his life, Jesus entered Zion. He entered the city of David, Jerusalem. He rode in on the back of a donkey's colt, a symbol of peace and humility, not as a king returning from war, but as a king returning in a spirit and a time of peace. And he was greeted as a king by those who witnessed his arrival. Do you remember from Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus, as he's riding in on the Colt of this donkey. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, Matthew says, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed behind were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. David, that one great king of Israel, his son would be the heir to his throne. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus enters Jerusalem that week before he is crucified, he's greeted as a king, and rightfully so. He's crucified at the end of that week with a sign over his head that was meant to be ironic, but in fact spoke the greatest truth that ever the world had heard. Here is the king of the Jews. And friends, when Christ returns again, he will return to rule over this world made new. He will return to rule over his kingdom. There in that place, in the new heavens and the new earth, the risen King Jesus will be greeted by those whose hearts have been cleansed from sin by faith in Him. His death for sins, His resurrection from the dead, being trusted is the only way for salvation and a right relationship with God. Those who know Christ by faith, the people of God, Will welcome their king with a divine kingship song that is recorded for us in Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. In the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes to reign perfectly and finally over this world made new, we will all gather together around his throne singing these words Hallelujah! For the Lord God, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That will be a glorious day when our Our King comes to reign over His kingdom. And dear friends, Jesus is reigning over His kingdom even now today. In the hearts of everyone who trusts Jesus as Savior, knowing that He died for your sins, was raised from the dead, is the only Son of God who could pay the penalty for our sins. We who trust Him by faith, who are living every day, every moment of our lives, in submission to Him as King, He is ruling and reigning, in our hearts, even now today. And so Jesus is not waiting to rule over his kingdom. He's already begun to rule. And when he returns to the new heavens and the new earth, he will rule finally and perfectly forever. Psalm teaches us that the Lord reigns over his kingdom. It teaches us fourthly that the Lord reigns in righteousness and holiness. What kind of king is this God? He's a king who reigns in righteousness and holiness. There's a reason that our, uh, our sort of American forefathers rebelled uh, against uh, the king of Britain at the time because he did not reign in righteousness and holiness. But God does. Verse 10 of this psalm, which reads, You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 10 is a call to those who love the Lord to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Because the Lord comes in righteousness with pure judgments. His saints who have been preserved, his saints who have been delivered by his righteousness are compelled to mirror his character. We who have been saved by the king are compelled to live like the king. Thus to be a citizen of the king is to reflect his very nature as well. Now we do not become God like he is God, but our hearts, our wills, our desires are changed by him to match his In this regard, the one who is righteous and upright in heart has the blessing of being given light, as the psalmist says in verse 11. Light in the midst of darkness and joy when the king comes. We who know the king and love the king, who love what what he loves and who hate what he hates, rejoice at his coming. Verse 12 is a final call to the righteous citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 12 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Those who have been made righteous by their faith in submission to him are to rejoice when he comes. The call is to be glad, to have joy uh, overflowing. They have already been made joyous. The citizens of God's kingdom already know the joy of knowing God and walking with him. But they are also to give thanks and to praise his holy name. Literally, the, the Hebrew would read in verse 12, give thanks to his holiness that the very name of the Lord is referred to as holy, give thanks to his holy name, give thanks to his holiness, is to say more than just that his name is set apart, more than just that his name is different, but that Yahweh himself, as a function of his own nature, is holy. God is entirely different than we are. God is perfectly righteous. We are not. God is perfectly just. And we are not. God is perfectly moral and good and merciful and kind and loving. And we are not. And it is important for us to know that He is. Holy, that he's different, that he's set apart and high above us. And we ought to give thanks to his holiness. We ought to give thanks for his holy nature. We who know the Lord and all of his perfections should be led to worship him for them. Because by contrast, we see how much greater he is in contrast to us. Moses says of the Lord in Exodus 15, he says, there's none like him in holiness. He says, who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The rhetorical question, Who is like you, O Lord, is answered with the obvious answer of no one. There's no one who can do the things that God can do. There is no one who can save us from sin and death and eternal separation from God in hell other than God Himself. There's no one who can overcome our rebellion against him like God. There's no one who can deliver us from from the depths of our sin like the one who is perfectly holy. And so for that, we are grateful. God is holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is three times holy. He is holiness cubed. The prophet Isaiah in his day, about 700 years before Jesus was born, saw a vision of the Lord seated on his throne in the heavenly places. And this is what Isaiah records for us in his vision. He said, I saw the Lord seated, uh, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these sort of angelic creatures, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraphim called to the other and said, this is their song around the throne of the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim do not sing holy, holy, holy because they they only know one word and and they're just going to say it three times because that's all they can fill their space with. No, they're saying holy three times because three is that number of sort of divine perfection in Scripture. God is divinely perfect in holiness. There is no one holy like Him. There is no one even near to Him in holiness. And this is the song of the seraphim, of these angelic beings that serve Him day and night uh, through all eternity. Holy, holy, holy. Righteous, just, merciful is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord reigns in justice and in righteousness because he is holy, the psalmist teaches. And we see Christ the King in the New Testament. Christ the King, the sinless Messiah. That holy Messiah who died for sins and who rose again to save sinners. 700 years that we said before Jesus was born, that prophet Isaiah spoke. Not just of this vision of God that he saw, but he also spoke of a coming king. The Hebrew word is Messiah. It means anointed one. Isaiah spoke of this Messiah as one who saw his coming as happening before his own very eyes. He said in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah sees a day where a coming Messiah will come to rule in justice and righteousness in holiness. The author of Hebrews says this about Jesus himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, they're referring to Christ's death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews continues later on in verse 8. Of the Son, of the Son of God, the Lord says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter uh, scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions dear friend there is no king like the lord there is no king other than jesus and scripture is consistent from the psalms through the gospels and and through the letter to the hebrews that jesus is that king that Jesus is the Lord who reigns in righteousness and in holiness. He is the one of whom the seraphim sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus rules over creation. Jesus rules over spiritual powers in the world. Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts of those who are turned in faith to him. Jesus rules and reigns in righteousness and holiness unlike any other. So, dear friend, today I have but one application for us, one encouragement, one exhortation. With humility, with repentance, and with faith, turn your life over to the control of King Jesus. Knowing that Jesus is the King, the Lord who reigns, give your life in humility, repentance, and faith to Him. If the God of the Bible is the kind of King that Psalm 97 describes, He is truly worthy of all devotion and worship. Not just because He's powerful, but because He is good. And if, as the Bible demonstrates, Jesus is the promised Messiah and the divine Son of God, if He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, then He is likewise worthy of being loved and obeyed with every molecule of our existence. He's the Lord of creation. He's the commander of spiritual forces. He is God over all and ruler in the hearts of His people. He who gave His life to grant forgiveness of sins can be known by us in truth. We don't have to grasp about in darkness trying to find out who Jesus is. God's word reveals him to us. To know him, friend, is to love him. And to love him is to live in obedience to him. Know this this morning there is no halfway citizen of Christ's kingdom. You are either united to him by faith and living with intentional obedience to his commands, or you are still a rebel against the king. There is no F1B visa. Into the kingdom of the Lord, whereby you can bring particular skills to help the church. Uh, You don't have to become a citizen, but you just work really hard and profit the kingdom, and then uh, the king will look nicely upon you. No, dear friends, you are either a citizen by faith and submission to to Christ the king, or you are not. There is no pretend, or you can pretend, but at the end of time, God knows the hearts of all. There is no halfway citizen of the kingdom. To be indifferent about Jesus is to be opposed to him. For he himself says that to be a part of his kingdom, we must deny ourselves, deny our own will, exchange it for his, and follow him. The way Jesus refers to this is you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus says you must be ready to die every day following in my footsteps. Dying to your sin, dying to yourself, dying to your selfish desires for your life. Setting all those things aside to follow me in obedience, says Jesus. Friend, hear me this morning. If Christ is not yet your king if you're not yet a citizen a citizen of the kingdom, you're not yet trusted Jesus, given your life over to him by faith, trusting his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, if Christ is not your king yet today, he may be so. He may be so. Simply trust him by faith. Simply give yourself to living in ever-growing worship and love of Jesus. Yeah. Set aside your pride. Make Jesus your everything. Take up your cross and follow him. Friend, if you're already a Christian, you already claim Christ as king. You've already submitted to following him this way. But maybe for all intents and purposes, Jesus has little to do with your life apart from Sunday morning, Sunday morning worship. My exhortation to you today, who say you are a Christian, a citizen of the king, but are living like a functional atheist, turn in repentance today. Confess your sin of indifference about Jesus. Say, Lord I'm sorry that I've lived my whole life or so much of my life acting like you don't matter. Like I could have an F1B visa into your kingdom. Like I could just pretend and do all the things. I, 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 I acknowledge your authority to a particular degree, but the rest of, maybe the rest of the week, apart from someday, I'm just living my life the, the way that I want to. Friend, you who claim Christ is king but have been living like a functional atheist, make Christ your king today again. Turn in repentance. Confess your sin of indifference about Jesus. Take up again the cross of discipleship to follow Jesus with every thought, with every effort, with every passion, with every motive, with every minute of your life as the king who died for your sins and the king who rose again in glorious might to make you a part of his kingdom. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray.